Hey guys, this is Stowe Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I want to let you guys know about another great Mises event we have coming up on November 4th in Fort Myers, Florida. As you know, everyday Americans feel the political capture of the economy. Inflation, taxes, and regulatory costs hit our paychecks and our savings. The regulatory capture of the medical industries, food and energy production, and the various instruments of big tech empower the regime with new tools to promote their latest ideological cause. The ever-growing burden of government debt has become a crisis without any political will to address it. We're going to be talking about these very issues at this event in Fort Myers. And best of all, we have a discount code for Radio Rothbard listeners. If you use promo code RR2023, RR as in Radio Rothbard, 2023, you'll get $10 off at this event. If you want to learn more, visit Mises.org slash FL2023. FL is in Florida. Look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm executive editor with the Mises Institute. And joining me this time as my co-host is one of our fellows, Jonathan Newman. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve, just more historical perspective where the Fed's been and where it's taking us. And this is somewhat to commemorate the fact that uh, we are approaching the 110th anniversary of Congress's passage of the Federal Reserve Act. Now, of course, the Fed didn't actually start functioning until 1914, the next year, because it turned out they couldn't actually get the Fed up and running in about six days. Uh, but... It's, uh, it's now been more than a century, and we've got a long record of the Fed to look at. And we're just going to examine a little bit of that. And we're coming fresh off of the Supporter Summit here at the Mises Institute. And this is where, of course, we get together every year with our donors and uh, our best scholars give a, provide a variety of presentations. And, of course, Jonathan was part of that. And there were lots of good talks here on the Fed, its history, its future. And so I want to talk a little bit about some of the highlights uh, from the event, but also just what to expect from the Fed going forward in larger historical context. Of course, there's plenty of uh, talk on financial Twitter and in the general media about what the Fed is doing this month right now. And a lot of that's just taken at face value in terms of, well, the Fed has a plan. The Fed knows what they're doing. The Fed will get everything under control. Um, and I'm skeptical of those narratives. And I think history uh, tends to uh, support uh, that idea, um, the idea of skepticism, that is. And so let's, let's just let's look at the Fed. How would you... Um, Jonathan, on, a, on an A to F scale, how would, <laughs> what grade would you give the Fed for managing the economy since uh, the COVID lockdowns and the 2020 crisis, and why? So, yeah, definitely an F. Um, clearly an F. And what, what's interesting is to see how the, the Fed's own, uh, own goals it hasn't met its own goals. So it, it started off with this very austere mandate. It started off just to 
to provide an elastic currency and to stabilize the the banking system. That that was the idea. So everybody was afraid of these uh, bank panics. And and of course, in, instead of just making banks uh, more stable themselves, instead of you know asking banks to keep more reserves and and to pre- protect themselves in the event of a bank run. The, the answer came in the form of a central bank that would that would cartelize the whole banking system and and protect banks from their own losses. So so that was but that's how the the Fed started. It started off with that very simple goal, um, and even just based on that, it has failed over the course of its history. Uh, and of course, over the years, it's it's brought it, it has uh, taken on new goals. Um, like it famously has the dual mandate, so it's supposed to keep prices stable and maximize employment. And of course, if you just look any series, uh, any time series of the data of employment and, and prices, however they're measured, you can clearly see that the Fed has failed at that as well, that it doesn't maintain stable prices. Um, in fact, the, the dollar has has lost almost all of its purchasing power. I think like the, it's one commonly cited statistic is that it's lost 97% of its purchasing power since 1913. Um, and of course, we've had business cycles, and so em- employment and unemployment has, has gone up and down uh, with the business cycles that were caused by monetary policy done by the Fed. So it, it's it's done that. Uh, it, one goal, um, one goal that it has taken on that it has actually succeeded is in financing the government. So and that became an explicit goal, especially in World War One and in World War Two. Um, they said that they were. They were going to be there to buy up government debt and and finance all of the war spending, and of course that was a major success for them. So so there really is no boundary now. There's no limit on on what the federal government can do in terms of spending because it has this ready buyer of its debt with a money printer. Um, so I mean, there's one success. Can we call that a success? <laughs> well, it's interesting that that never gets mentioned. Um... It gets mentioned slightly recently, but if you just look at the last 20 years of discussions of Fed policy, they never mention that the Fed is really trying to balance um, what it does for the central government in terms of, okay, what's Fed policy going to be this month? And they always talk about it in terms, well, they want to maximize economic growth and they want to keep unemployment low and they want to keep inflation low and they, they just want to do what's good for America. (laughs) And they never bring up the issue of, well, they have to keep interest rates low so that our massive federal debt uh, doesn't have runaway debt service payments. They never mention that uh, one of the main purposes of the Fed is just to really make the national debt manageable by ramming down interest rates on uh, federal debt. And that's... Uh, that's, of course, the cynical view and the correct view of what the Fed's political motivations are, is that it's very much there uh, to perform a service to the central government and to keep it financed. And we can see that in crises, of course, this happens all the time. In World War II, the Fed just basically started buying up government debt um, to create artificial demand for it because mm-hmm. they couldn't they couldn't. If, if the federal government was to really uh, just rely on the market to purchase all those war bonds, uh, it was going to have to, they were going to have to raise yields massively, and the Fed, federal government was never going to be able to make all the payments on that debt. So they just had an agreement with the Fed that it would, 
buy up tons of war debt and keep interest rates low. And that's just general crisis management that the Fed provides. And so, oh, we decided we're going to shut the government down. We decided we're going to shut the economy down because we're afraid of COVID. Well, what are we going to do? Nobody's, nobody's making anything. Nobody's producing anything. Uh, people are getting laid off. That's okay. We'll just print up $6 trillion. And that'll yeah. solve the political problem. They frame it like it's some sort of, it's a bunch of bean counters somewhere just trying to figure out the science of the economy or something <laughs> when the reality is, right, it's just about helping the government deal with political crises. And that's, you need to take the sociological political view of the Fed, I think, is part of the problem that economists make a lot of the time, is they get bogged down and talk about the Taylor rule and economic theory and just assume that everybody at the Fed is a devoted scientist in economics who only wants to uh, figure out how do we make the economy work when the reality is something much different, especially at the higher levels. I have no doubt that maybe there's some conscientious bean counters deep in the sub-basement of the Fed who are <laughs> cranking out reports or something, but those people aren't the decision makers. And the real decision makers are people like Powell, people who uh, go to cocktail parties in Washington and, and make political decisions. Um, they're not making decisions based on where does the economic science lead us. And I think that was a big strength of uh, a lot of the presentations at the Supporter Summit is this, this is one of the few places you're going to go where you actually see uh, economists taking the full view of the Fed and uh, the variety of side effects that it has and what many of the real motivations are in that deep connection to political realities that go far beyond just what the Fed tells us is the economics of monetary policy. And so that's, that's always refreshing. And uh, you don't get that in a lot of places, uh, especially up at the higher levels where reporters just take everything the Fed says at face value and uh, just generally assume that uh, everyone's being honest and, and there's no hidden agenda at all. Yeah, it's, it's sort of unfortunate how alone we are in looking through the veil of, of sophistication, the air of sophistication around the, the Fed. Everybody looks at them as like they're these, uh, like you said, scientists who are carefully balancing costs and benefits, and they've got these very high-powered models and high-powered computers to run those models to figure out where the economy is going to be a few quarters from now or, or even uh, in the longer term. And of course, if you look at the track record of those forecasts, whether they're forecasting something like GDP or the unemployment rate or inflation or even their own policy variable, the, the targeted federal funds rate, they're very consistently way off. Um, so it, it's interesting that they continue to have this reputation of being like these really bright uh, excellent forecasters, and they know what they're doing, and yet their own forecasts are wrong. And uh, uh, another bit of evidence that they don't really know what they're doing, uh, and this is something that Alex Pollock has talked about a lot, including at the Supporter Summit, is that the Fed has incurred massive losses. So the Fed is now, uh, they're, they're not making their usual payments uh, to the Treasury. And of course, they've got cr these creative accounting tricks to to call those losses deferred assets. So they're just gonna delay when they resume those payments to the treasury. But it, it just goes to show that that they they can't weigh risk like uh, actors in the market can. They they don't they don't judge the future in the same way that 
entrepreneurs in the unhampered market economy would. Uh, they're, they're just as much in the dark as everybody else. And the, and the fact that they have uh, these these models that they give them predictions of the future, um, it seems to it seems to brainwash. It seems to to convince everybody else that that uh, the Fed does know what they're doing. And and you were talking about the like what happens at their press conferences and their meetings, and it's it's so interesting how how much attention they get when the FOMC is making their announcements. And so like everybody is. Everybody's watching the Fed. Everybody's watching the Fed chair, make the, and he's just reading a transcript. He's just reading a, a report that was published, you know, a few minutes ago or a few hours ago. I'm not sure the timing of it, but he's just reading through it, and everybody's sort of like gauging the pauses between the sentences. And everybody's everybody's looking at these tiny little textual differences, like oh, in the in the last one he said this, but now he's using this word to describe it, and it's just it it's uh, oh, and if you look at the news media. There, it's almost like sports commentary. They're doing like a play-by-play. Like every minute, there's some new update, something that they're saying about what the Fed chair is saying in, in their press release. And, and it's, in my opinion, there's just way too much attention given to it. Uh, there's very little, um, there's very little big picture and critical thinking going on where people aren't really, they're not asking the important questions, which is like, why, why should the Fed be manipulating interest rates in the first place? Or like, why why do we need uh, why do we need an elastic, a so-called elastic money supply? Why why do we need the Fed to to manage and, and protect the banking system? Nobody's ever asking those sorts of questions. They're asking questions. I, I, the way I said it in a in a talk, I think it was at Nashville. I said everybody's looking to see how much uh, Jay Powell's brow glistens while he's reading this, as as opposed to asking those important questions. Well, and for old timers like me, we all remember uh, the Greenspan days where, yeah, anytime they didn't have the press conferences back then, uh, that that was forced on the Fed by the Ron Paul and the Fed movement where people started uh, bad mouthing the Fed in public regularly. And so then the Fed decided, oh, I guess we'll we'll have press conferences now to explain ourselves and use it as a as a PR scheme and that only started in 2011 after the last crisis and when when criticizing the fed became a thing but back in the the 90s yeah everybody hung on greenspan's every word and it was all gibberish by the way it was just phrases he would spout and which explain nothing um but which people would parse every word to figure mm -hmm. out what oh what's greenspan going to do next um, I could tell you what Greenspan was going to do. He was going to expand the money supply. That's what, <laughs> as a Greenspan did. What what's, what gets me in, in the way that they phrase things is they always they love the engine metaphors. Like we're gonna um, we're gonna ease up on like the gas pedal, or we're gonna depress the brakes, or something like that. Or like the the economy is like an engine that will cool or heat up too much. That sort of thing. They love the engine metaphor so much. Uh, I guess they've decided people are impressed by that. Although, you know, you got to remember these are like 80 year olds a lot of the time. And I think engine metaphors were very, uh, if you come from the age of muscle cars, maybe that seems really impressive. I don't know. I don't think people are as impressed with engines as they used to. <laughs> maybe it's a generational thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know why they always use that metaphor. I guess it's just the, this idea that the, uh, the economy is some sort of machine that can be manipulated. And that, that brings us, I think, to, to something that um, 
that Joe Salerno talked about in his presentation at the Supporter Summit. He talked about the history, uh, really, of the justification of the Fed. And uh, today, as always, so much of the Fed is justified on this idea that it, it controls inflation. And that you need to, as you say, you need an, a, a flexible, elastic money supply, and that somehow you need someone to be in charge of that and some sort of central planner to dictate that. Uh, but that's, that's clearly not the reality. Every time we hear that the, the Fed is there to control inflation and we look at it, we see that the opposite is true. And that's made even worse in the United States by the dual mandate, where in most other countries, not all, it's, it's a single mandate where they're told to uh, just control inflation, where uh, the Fed is not there to actually maximize uh, economic growth and employment. However, uh, I would say that, that gives additional cover to the Fed here. But if you look at other central banks, it's not like they behave any better than the Federal Reserve in the United States. So apparently you don't need a dual mandate to get a misbehaving central bank. But in the United States, that's just a, a fairly unique thing that people should probably know about is that it's literally written into legislation that the central bank is supposed to somehow maximize economic growth and economic performance, which... Mm -hmm. Uh, makes no sense whatsoever. There's no reason to assume that that's something a central bank could do, uh, especially since that was never, ever the original intended reason given for the creation of the Fed 100 years ago. It was just, as you noted, just supposed to be a big um, lender of last resort, a, a warehouse for, for money in crisis periods. And that's completely different from trying to maximize employment. Yet here we are, and you can see that really the rhetoric has changed uh, not that much in the big scheme of things, although over the last 15 years or so now, the Fed is basically expected to do everything. And uh, Joe goes over that quite a bit, um, and we can just see that anywhere that central banks are given significant leeway that the currency, whatever it is, loses immense amounts of its value. And this is really difficult for regular people then to keep up with. And I think that's a theme that came up in which really can't be harped on enough is the fact that central banks lead to greater economic equality. They impact lower income people the most. Uh, inflation does not enter the economy in an even way. It benefits some groups uh, oh, uh, more so than others. And that is something that is just generally completely ignored by the likes of Paul Krugman and people who, who insist that the Fed is actually a wonder worker and keeps everybody happy and that they, the hayseeds just don't know how good they have it. Um, in recent months, Krugman has reportedly, has repeatedly uh, attempted to insist that inflation is gone and is no longer a factor and, and is not a, a matter of hardship for anybody. And you see this a lot just in the mainstream reporting as well. And it's really quite remarkable that they're able to get away with that. And never, ever is there any admission of the lopsided effects that Fed-induced or Fed-enabled, rather, inflation is, uh, is a factor in people's ordinary daily lives. And 
there's very little talk now. Now that inflation has plummeted to a mere 4% or so, we're supposed to believe that it just has <laughs> no effect on people. And, of course, this is, as you've noted in some of your writings, and we've noted many times on Mises.org, the CPI underestimates really true uh, price growth anyway. It doesn't really take at all into uh, full account the realities of asset price inflation on top of consumer price inflation. And what we're left then with is just this ongoing myth that uh, the Fed has the situation under control. And we have a whole economics ruling class of sorts. All the elite economists just keep telling us that uh, everything's under control and it will be fine. But it, uh, it doesn't seem to be fine for regular people who don't seem to feel good about their economic situation at all. And what, what the economists then fall back on then is, is quoting increasingly uh, obscure and uh, <laughs> difficult to understand uh, economic statistics that they point to and say, hey, look, everything's fine. Whereas people look around and they see that, they're, that the cost of living just keeps going up and their real wages are stagnating at the very least, if not going down. And then these people are just basically told to shut up and, and recognize how good they have it. So it's really quite a remarkable situation, and I think it's really highlighting the big economic divide between the central bank um, party and the ordinary people party who unfortunately don't understand much about how the central bank is actually screwing them. Yeah, if you if you take CPI, which is obviously a wonderful statistic, but then you take out uh, housing and energy and food prices and all of these other things that people buy, then we're down to our 2% target of institutionalized permanent inflation. So everybody should be happy. Why is everybody complaining? So th this is this is what uh what Krugman does is he He's famous on Twitter. He'll post some graph of, of CPI, and he takes out all of these things that people actually buy, uh, and it's all to make this claim that we've achieved the soft landing, that we've got we've got inflation back down to two percent, and therefore everybody should, like you said, shut up, stop, stop complaining. Uh, but I, I want to go back to you mentioned the Taylor Rule and uh, Salerno's talk at the Supporters Summit. So, so for uh, those who don't know, the Taylor Rule is uh, it's this idea for the way that a the monetary policy authority could or should uh, do monetary policy, and the idea is that they would take this thing called the output gap, uh, which is the difference between uh, actual and potential GDP growth, and the inflation gap, which is the difference between actual and targeted inflation, and we'll give those two different gaps uh, a certain weight, like like in a weighted average. And we'll use that to calculate what our targeted uh, interest rate should be so that we can get back to the long-run macroeconomic equilibrium as as would be indicated by like a, a Keynesian agri-supply and agri-demand framework. And so that that's it, that is what a lot of people think about when they say the Fed should follow a rule, like we should have rules-based monetary policy. And there are other rules that, that have been offered, but the Taylor rule is, is one of the more famous ones. And what was interesting about Salerno's talk is he was talking about how uh, it's a rules-based monetary policy is not necessarily better than discretion. And he pointed to one particular historical episode uh, under the Eisenhower administration in which there were a bunch of, of anti-inflationists in charge. So Eisenhower was anti-inflation and there were other people who were anti-inflation. 
And the fact that they had that sort of ideological underpinning guiding their monetary policy, they, they achieved the lowest rate of inflation um, in the, I think it was in, since, the, since World War II. So the fact that they were able to have that discretion enabled them to, to uh, attack inflation. Whereas if they were following a rule like the Taylor rule, then it, it might have uh, prescribed more inflation. And so, so Salerno's point is that what really matters is the ideology. What really matters is what, what framework do people use to view the, the economy and what, what makes it function in a healthy sort of way. And if they had this view that government spending is what drives the economy, government debt is uh, stimulative, all of those sorts of things, then they're going to fall back on a rule that gives them the leeway to do that sort of thing, to, to inflate as much as they want to. Uh, whereas if, uh, if they have this like a, a sound money sort of perspective, then uh, they don't really need a rule. They just need, they just need to be able to respond to the environment as it exists and, and you know, stop printing money, not print as much money. So it was really an interesting talk because it's, it's something that it's a debate that hasn't really uh, or has really only just started even within like the Austrian econ circle here of, of discussing which is better discretionary monetary policy and rules-based monetary policy. And Salerno pretty convincingly made the case that uh, at least there's something to be said about discretion because it enables the anti-inflationist idea to actually have its way. Oh, and also he said that what a rules-based monetary policy would do is it would just institutionalize inflation. So if you have as a rule, we have to target 2% inflation, and that, that is the rule that we'll follow, then that means we'll just have permanent inflation and, and all of its disastrous effects. So rules, rules aren't necessarily better than discretion. Well, and that's what they're trying to get now is a institutionalized 2% inflation goal, which will then become, well, it started out as, as a hard 2% goal at any given time. You wanted 2% all the time. And then it became a 2% average goal a few years mm -hmm. ago. So, oh, well, inflation was too low for a period, so now we need to average that out. So now we need above 2% for a while. And now you, you read articles in the Wall Street Journal and other outlets saying, well, maybe three or four percent is really the more appropriate inflation goal. And what's wrong with, if two percent inflation was fine, what's wrong with four percent? And so you can see where that's headed. And so that, <laughs> by, you're right, by coming up with this, this hard goal that we can put in place, that, that's just one method the inflationists can use. Uh, mm -hmm. And you're never really taking control out of the hands of the central bankers, as we've seen, right? Every time there's what the statute says barely matters. Every time there's a crisis, the Fed is just given carte blanche to do whatever it, it uh, whatever Congress thinks it should do in order to just stave off a political crisis for just a little, a few more years, another six months. Let's just, let's just see how long we can keep the current corrupt regime going, uh, and the Fed can be a, a central factor to that. And so that's really just what these, where these rules go. They're, they're, it's like the, the gold standard, right? It could be suspended at any time. The gold standard isn't a cure-all. Uh, as long as you have people who believe that the government can take control of the money supply, gold standards come and go. And mm -hmm. you saw that in the Napoleonic Wars. You saw that in World War One. 
the, the gold standard just simply disappears when there's a war and they just suspend it. And then later they maybe will try and um, reinstate it. But that hasn't happened uh, since World War One, because after World War One came, uh, really the gold standard ended in World War One, not really 1933. It ended when the U.S. after the Genoa Convention with Europe uh, began to switch over to this uh, gold exchange standard, where normal people weren't allowed to hold gold, just big banks and major institutions and such, and and it was used for international trade. And then just gradually, it was just went away. Completely, uh, even though there was some ideological uh, affinity for gold, the government just did what it wanted with it, and so the rule would be any sort of rule would be treated exactly the same way. Is oh, there's a crisis, rules out the window. We need to change the rule, just like whenever there's a crisis, gold standards out the window. And so as long as the people allow them to get away with it, they'll get away with it. And that that's really what's what the problem is with monetary policy is that. People at the Fed get away with whatever they want. Uh, they don't mm -hmm. understand how it works. They they trust the Fed. They think the Fed knows what it's doing. Um, but as as we've we saw at the supporter summit, and we just look at all of the research on Mises.org, it's a long, terrible history of the Fed's management. They didn't know what they were doing in the 20s and 30s. They didn't know what they were doing in the 70s. They didn't know what they were doing under Greenspan. Greenspan thought it was a brilliant idea to create a housing bubble. Uh, in response to uh, the dot-com bust in 2001. That was basically a deliberate plan, was yeah. to get the economy going by inflating the housing markets. And that, and we've all seen how that ended. And so now that's we're continuing down that same road with the same sorts of central bankers who have never repudiated any of this uh, alleged brilliant thinking of the past. And that's what we have now. And so as long as the public thinks that's that's an okay to keep okay way to keep going, then that's what we'll we'll keep getting. Um, so there does have to be an ideological shift. We're certainly not going to get any help on that from the media, which, as you note, uh, just takes everything at face value and uh, thinks that Powell somewhere has a secret plan that he's just not revealing to us, but knows how everything's going to happen. Um, in fact, it's, it's remarkable to see how people actively, when it comes to the Fed, they actively promote the idea of the noble lie, where, uh, and you know, if you haven't read your Plato lately, right, the, the, the noble lie is this idea that the philosopher kings should just lie to the people uh, and fill their heads with um, untruths that help manage society in a way uh, that makes it more virtuous or more safe or whatever your standard wants to be. And in the scheme of uh, the Republic, where Plato was talking about, it, it's fine. It's fine for the ruling class to tell lies uh, because uh, normal people can't handle the truth. And uh, we all need to be managed uh, by the people who really do know the truth. And so you can see that a lot in this discussion about the Fed is, well, they're managing expectations. You can't, you can't expect the, the dolts on Wall Street uh, they'll get carried away if the Fed says anything that's too hawkish or anything that's too dovish. So the Fed actually has to lie and maybe send the wrong message so that they can help manage uh, the, the animal spirits on Wall Street. So there's just outright support for the idea that the Fed should essentially be deceiving people in order to, uh, to calm tensions on Wall Street and to keep everything going well 
and uh, really to, to make it so that the peons aren't, uh, aren't given too much information so that they mismanage the economy without appropriate Fed oversight. And people, that just seems to be the overall attitude of the Fed. It's, it's this ultimate technocratic idea that markets can't handle it, normal people can't handle it. Uh, but the Fed, they need, to, they need to keep everything close to the breast. They need to have their secrets and maybe just dribble out some information in a way that helps manage uh, the thoughts and vices of ordinary people who can't handle the truth. Yeah, that's the, that's the uh, idea behind them offering <clears throat> forward guidance. So the idea is that uh, with their predictions that they, that they make, so they issued this report, I think it's quarterly, the SEP, the uh, Summary of Economic Projections. And those were the, uh, the, their projections of GDP, unemployment, CPI, and the Fed funds rate that I talked about before. But the goal of that uh, ostensibly is to manage expectations. It's, it's so that they offer the market this forward guidance so nobody is ever surprised by what the Fed does. And uh, there's a couple interesting aspects to this. Uh, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. One is that uh, to the extent that people actually rely on these projections, uh, so like they, they just take it at face value, suppo suppose they do that, what, what that means is that the projections themselves turn into an element of surprise. So, it, so if they're trying to not surprise markets with an all of a sudden change in their targeted federal funds rate, uh, so they want to make sure everybody knows exactly what they're going to do on the day that they do it, uh, what it means is that now markets are just going to respond to their updated projections. And we actually saw this in the most recent uh, FOMC meeting where uh, there was no, nobody was surprised by what the Fed did with the targeted federal funds rate, but they were surprised at the change in in the pace of, of tightening or they were surprised at, um, by some change in the projection of what the federal funds rate will be sometime next year. And so and that had an effect on markets today. So by by offering this sort of forward guidance, you're just you're just changing what is the element of surprise. You're not you're not actually getting rid of the element of surprise. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is that the I think there's way more uncertainty today, e even among like the big financial institutions, than there has ever been, and it's because the Fed has been doing unprecedented things so much lately. So they started doing all these brand new things in 2008. So they started buying mortgage-backed securities, and they exploded the size of their balance sheet, That no, and nobody was expecting these sorts of, of qualitative moves, not quantitative moves, but qu like qualitative changes in the way that the Fed operates. And then, of course, uh, in COVID and, and in the intervening years between 2008 and the, and the pandemic, uh, the Fed was doing all these brand new things that people didn't even realize that the Fed had authority to do, and and perhaps they don't. Uh, and but since COVID, uh, the they've the Fed has been surprising everybody in, in the same sort of way by doing all these brand new things. So like now they they have these maiden lane corporations that they lend to, and these maiden lane corporations are invested in in all sorts of uh, stocks and and bonds. And so the the Fed is not the Fed is actively or actively but indirectly picking winners and losers in the market, uh, even more so than their purchases of the mortgage-backed securities in the, in the Great Recession. So I think, I think what, what we've come to is a point where now nobody knows what category of thing the Fed will do in the next crisis. So since the Fed has been doing all of these brand new things in the past, there's so much uncertainty now because people aren't just trying to predict what the 
targeted federal funds rate will be at the end of next year. But they're also trying to think about, well, what brand new thing, what brand new power and authority will the will the Fed unveil when we have the next crisis? And what will the effects of that be? And so I think there's a bunch of brand new uncertainty uh, in, in this day and age that didn't exist before simply because the Fed has been has been doing all of these brand new things uh, for the past uh, couple of decades. You know, that's a very interesting observation, and I think something that maybe we should emphasize more often is this idea that the Fed is there to make the economy less uh, turbulent and more predictable, because this is implied a lot of the time, is that, well, there's price stability because of the Fed, and uh, you don't have the chaos of the free market. But as you note, actually, the amount of uncertainty is off the charts because of what the Fed does. And we could see that even in the, it's, it's been especially uh, on steroids over the last 15 years in terms of the Fed doing new stuff all the time, extremely unpredictable. But I think if, if we look at these talks from the supporter summit and just the history of the Fed in general, right, we can see that the amount of uncertainty that's actually promoted by the central bank is really quite remarkable where you have, oh, well, we're off the gold standard now. Oh, we're, uh, we're buying up huge amounts of government bonds to finance the war. Oh, we're buying mortgage-backed securities now. Oh, we're going to uh, just uh, shift up the, uh, the target rate significantly, or we're going to cut it significantly. And the, oh, are we going to have a central bank digital currency yeah, next yeah. year, right? I, I don't know. Is that going to, that would of course be a huge change to the economy. And you really can't trust the Fed to stay the course, to have any particular predictable policy going forward, because there's constant major changes going on to suit uh, the political needs of the regime. So where is that stability? Where is the predictability that the Fed is supposed to offer? There, there isn't any. And this is all on top of just the, the basic economic theory that, say, Peter Klein covered in his talk, which was that thanks to the central bank uh, making decisions as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, trying to predict what the economy is going to do, trying to figure out what the actual price signals mean. This is all thrown uh, into chaos and, uh, and made to go haywire by central bank policy. You, it's all the price signals are messed up. You don't know when inflation is going to be added to the economy and where. And this is far, far worse than what you get from a private sector economy in terms of unpredictability and uh, any sort of price variation that might occur as a result of crises and so on. The Fed actually introduces uh, an enormous amount of uncertainty and crisis that you would never uh, encounter otherwise in an actually sound money economy. And so that's, that's just, I think, one of maybe the biggest myths that people continue uh, to believe. And that comes back to the whole Fed independence thing, the idea that the, the Fed, of course, is, is making these decisions based on uh, what will stabilize the economy and, and make it easier for people to function within it. And it has nothing to do with politics. And we need to keep the Fed separate from politics as if that were even possible. And yeah, the reality, uh, I think, of, of the real amount of chaos added into the system of the Fed is just generally ignored. But I think if we look at the history of the Fed, it's, it's really quite apparent for all to see. 
Yeah, and it's it's more than just the fact that the Fed itself is unpredictable. Uh, it's it's also the case, like you, like you mentioned, uh, Peter Klein's talk that the Fed encourages everybody else to take on more risks risks than they otherwise would. So it yeah, it's it's really hard to guess what the Fed will do, uh, but the the sorts of interventions that they've that they started doing since the uh, Great Recession since the 2008 crisis, they they bailed out the big players. So they they bailed out the the big banks and the big um, um, financial institutions that were incurring all of these losses because mortgages were tanking in value. Uh, but then also uh, we had uh, in the bank failures earlier this year, the Fed and the FDIC and the Treasury, I think they all teamed up together to bail out the um, the. The depositors of the banks that failed, so like uh, Silicon Valley Bank failed, and even though those depositors had a, a amounts in their account that exceeded the uh, the maximum that was insur insurable by the FDIC, uh, they they still insured them. They they still backed them all up, and so they they bailed out all of those uh, depositors. And uh, also recently, we we've had uh, these brand new lending facilities set up by the Fed where people can offer up this collateral. Uh, at par value, by the way, not market value, and the market value is much lower than its par value, where people are able to borrow from the Fed with this with this massively overvalued collateral, and on very nice terms, and especially in the this environment where we have higher interest rates than the past. And so, even though the the point I'm trying to make is that even though the Fed is unpredictable, the sorts of of uh, interventions that the Fed has done has made people more inclined to take risks. And so, and we could also talk about the whole Austrian business cycle theory as well, where artificially low interest rates encourage entrepreneurs to to take on these longer term, riskier projects. So there's that element, but also like the categorically new things that the Fed is doing is is encouraging people to take more risks. And so it's a classic case of moral hazard where people people are thinking, yeah, I'll ma I'll make this loan. Yes, I'll take this loan. Yes, I'll 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 buy this house. I'll buy this business. I'll start this this new line of production. And there's this idea in the back of people's heads that it'll be okay because if some crisis comes, if there's some financial crisis that comes in the future, I'm sure I'm sure the government and its different agencies will all team up to to protect me somehow in some way. And so, and what that has done is that that has uh, caused all of these actors in the economy to take on way more risks than they otherwise would have. So it's it's not just that the Fed is unpredictable, but it's also that everybody is taking on more risk. And, and I think that, that that's obviously that's not healthy for our economy. Well, I feel like we've only really managed to skim the surface of all the reasons why we hate the central bank uh, <laughs> in these 40 minutes. Um, but I will post on our site uh, all of these talks from the Supporter Summit. You can get a broader view of some of the topics we've talked about uh, today. And really, I, I think what we're trying to communicate a little bit here with, with this episode is just that it's not just what you've generally heard about the Fed, right? It's not just that the Fed is destroying the purchasing power of the dollar. They, there's so much more to it in terms of inequality, in terms of predictability, in, in terms of uh, the business cycle, uh, in terms of the fact that you're being lied to and you're being ripped off for the benefit of the regime. These are all other issues that go along with the central bank. And uh, we're doing our best to provide you with uh, more info about that. So check out the, uh, the Mises.org this week. We'll get all of these talks up there for you. 
And uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of Radio Rothbard with that. Thank you to Jonathan for joining me today. And uh, we'll be back next week um, to uh, talk more about uh, what the regime has in store for us. And so until then, we'll see you next time.